0: You're listening to the Next Exec podcast series with Executive Women's Forum. In this episode, Jessica hosts her first guest from across the Atlantic, Dr. Sorka Helley. Sorka talks about how she used her transferable data wrangling skills acquired as an academic in her current role as principal data scientist. Her enthusiasm when talking about extracting value from data to help fight cybersecurity adversaries by scaling and up rationalizing machine learning models is contagious. She offers tips on storytelling with data, along with the skills she looks for in a data scientist working in cybersecurity. Hello, Sorsha. Thank you for taking time to speak with me.
1: Hi, Jessica. It's lovely to talk to you.
0: So, Sorsha, go ahead and share with our listeners what you do as a principal engineer and AI architect at McAfee.
1: So I was recruited to McAfee in 2014 as a statistician. Around that time, I mean, data science was really kind of emerging. And so I quickly became a data scientist. And what do I do? When I was recruited, my role was initially in working with our global threat intelligence cloud and working data analytics and data engineering and quality metrics on that. And a lot of the The measurements that you see today coming out from our corporate reports, such as we have more than 60 billion cloud queries a day to global threat intelligence. We deal with 375 new threats every minute in quarter one 2020. I'm just reading some of them off one of our reports here. Uh, We would have been involved in the early days of putting a lot of those together and collecting information by country, latency, threats, what happens to what product, that kind of thing, really big data problems before you know cloud analytics got really big. So that's kind of where I started. Naturally, as I developed in the industry and in with the technology stack, I've moved much more now towards public cloud, public mm-hmm. cloud analytics, um, in terms of both from business intelligence right through to AI, machine learning, stacks of tools, putting stacks of tools together and working at the end of things like machine learning operationalization. So it's amazing working in a company that really has data. I've mentored so many interns and so many data scientists who, who don't have access to really good quality data. So I love my job. That's amazing.
0: And when did you become passionate about data? What was it about data that you know, pulled and inspired you in your career? And maybe right in your education as well?
1: So education, I came across a number of years ago, an old school report in the bottom of a drawer, and it said about my maths. Circa is working her maths workbook with obvious enjoyment. And that was, you know, a hallmark of my journey through school all the time. One of my favorite things in uh, kind of junior high school was uh, geometric theorems and proving them. Um, And in kind of senior high school, um, my favorite activity in maths was solving differential equations, applied mechanics, mathematical physics, that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed applying mathematics to problems to real problems and that kind of led me to a technical university, Technical University of Dublin Mm -hmm. is where I started my undergraduate career and I was really fortunate to be on a really broad course which took in both applied physics, applied mathematics and applied computing in the early 2000s I suppose that laid the foundation of what I currently do, you know AI and cloud computing, in a sense, isn't a hell of a lot different to distributed computing um, from the early notes. It's just a different function you're fitting.
0: Sure, and when it comes to conversations with family members or maybe people who are not familiar right, with data science, how do you explain uh, data to them in general and also how it applies to their daily life?
1: Wow, yeah. To be honest, most people don't tend to get me into conversation about things like that. Um, Really? (laughs) You know, most people are just like, yeah, yeah, she's a rocket scientist or something like that. I tell them I count things and I look for bad guys in cloud data, you know, and that's essentially our mission is to, you know, to be looking for those new cutting edge threats and to be making sure that we can cover them as soon as they appear. I'm just so fortunate that I work with, in the same sense of when I was a postdoc, I used to work with experimentalists in Tyndall National Institute in in Cork. And I, you know, I design materials and they'd make them. I'm now in a really fortunate position. I work in the artificial intelligence group, but I have partners in the advanced threat research group. And we collaborate a lot on things like, you know, they're out there in the field, working with our customers, understanding the problems of our customers. And, and they work really closely with us to, um, to understand and um, the mechanisms and to get that insight deep into our analytics products. That's fascinating.
0: And it sounds like you have such a diverse perspective, right? From your university experience in regards to right data and science and the combination of the two um, will you share some examples of interesting things that you've done with data you've, you've already shared many but maybe
1: even currently that you're doing where we were tracking in our telemetry not just tracking the indicators of compromise um, in the telemetry uh, which we were doing and you'll now know that envision insights is a product and provides our customers with visibility on the latest campaigns in terms of clustering of threats and such, and how we were able to break them down and group them together and use unsupervised learning to uncover new things. Um, That was just such an amazing experience. As you know, within
0: the cybersecurity industry, everyone is focused on machine learning, right? And how to use machine learning to optimize what data, right, that they're gathering. So, what are the challenges of operationalizing machine learning models in your experience?
1: So, it's not like, you know, we're predicting how much money somebody's prepared to pay for a product, or we're not predicting what video somebody's going to buy, or, you know, those kind of things. Where if you hit with a customer on an online sales portal 50% of the time and they buy your product, that's great. You know, the trouble about things like cybersecurity is that, you know, it's relevant to your customer's absolute well-being, you know? So there's very tight room for maneuver. The second thing, of course, is that, you know, it's an adversarial industry Mm -hmm. and you have to be defensive and you have to build your systems in a defensive way. You know, we've all seen famous images of the, the stop sign with the, uh, with the yellow post-its stuck on them, you know. So uh, as our, and, and our chief data scientist, Celeste Freilich, has done an awful lot of work in adversarial machine learning. And, you know, definitely we hold those principles to heart. We're, you know, we know very well we're working in an adversarial world. And, you know, luckily enough now there are standards emerging. things like, you know, might you have a new adversarial standard or, they have various use cases etc on different ways that you can be attacked in that way so that's definitely a challenge that other operationalized machine learning systems don't face yeah
0: does that inspire you you know waking up in the morning as a right someone who is such a esteemed security professional and also data scientist to know that you're doing work that matters, right? And sort of beating bad guys, if you will.
1: Absolutely. At a time like this, you know, where the whole world is challenged, um, we were very lucky at the beginning of the pandemic to be able to to really be hands-on and help our advanced threat research colleagues with things like, you know, there was uh, fake COVID sites and Mm -hmm. COVID-related threats. And we could contribute very much towards keeping healthcare customers safe, and you know that kind of stuff. So there is a real hands-on um, and value in this time, which does help, kind of like you said, get up in the morning. And because otherwise, at the moment, you know it's kind of like, particularly actually in Ireland, where we're in the second half of a lockdown, you can't go anywhere. There's no pubs, restaurants open. You can't meet anybody. I'm just so lucky that I have such knowledgeable colleagues, such amazing colleagues. They're, they're supportive. We're a tight team. We have great collaboration, fantastic culture. I'm just very lucky.
0: One question I have, especially you talked about scholarships and women at the collegiate level, women in STEM. What do you notice that they are most concerned about in entering this field? Or even, right, in pursuing careers in machine learning and artificial intelligence?
1: I think women in this day and age tend to be far more on the maths end of things. And I think they find it difficult to find their way back in, you know, Mm. to the code side of things. That's my experience anyway. I'd like to see a lot more short courses in software development practices and stuff to give the women the opportunity To step back into those things that maybe software development practices, you know, practice engineers take for kind of granted. Because particularly in AI, you know, it's extremely useful to have that mathematical and physical knowledge behind the numerics. But it's very difficult to implement if you don't have those hands-on skills. And it just seems to me like it's kind of polarised. No, I understand. And
0: also, I feel like whenever I entered the cybersecurity industry in 2013, from an education perspective, it was about, you know, become an expert in this niche, right? Whether that's network security, cloud security, and point security. And now I feel like in universities and in curriculum, becoming more of a generalist. And how do you diversify your own expertise, right, from technical skills to soft skills and business skills. I think that's something that's so important that I've seen as a professional and also having one's led cybersecurity intern programs and new hire programs is to make sure that we're encouraging students, right, or new hires to diversify both technical and business. So feel free to share uh, any mentoring advice you've received or mentoring advice that you give to others entering the field.
1: Definitely. I think some of us technical people don't spend enough time thinking about soft skills. I know until I found coaching, until the, uh, that program that I was on, I didn't really realize I needed courses and things like storytelling in courses on presentation skills. I mean, I would presented as a post-doctorate all over the world and given really deep technical presentations. But I'd never spoken to a completely different, um, you know, audience to communicate technical ideas at a more accessible level. So these days, for example, in the Cork office, we've worked on programs like Toastmasters, you know, getting people to go and, and practice talking to strangers on completely niche topics, but in a supported way and to get over those, you know, those sure. kind of flushed moments of having <laughs> that to all speak. experience, yes. Yeah. So definitely taking on Toastmasters, small data competitions, any little course that's offered on the site. And we're very good at, at that as a site, giving brown bags and, and that kind of stuff.
0: I also wrote that down, innovate without
1: <laughs> fear, because that's a, it's a beautiful
0: phrase. And I think when practiced, especially when we're discussing machine learning and artificial intelligence, that it can become embodied in us, right? It not only becomes a concept, but it's a practice that we do.
1: Absolutely. And you know, the best thing about data is you can't really break anything. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so true. And I think it's important when you highlighted storytelling to be sure that you can communicate and tell the story around the data that you're speaking of and present it in a way to someone who may not understand it as well as you do. Any tips That's, on yeah. presenting data in an effective way?
1: That's a really good point. So when I was a postdoctorate um, and you were trying to get everything into a four-page journal article, you would be trying to cram about four different charts or you know messages into the one you know two or three inch square piece of you know journal image but of course if you're working in industry you're generally communicating to somebody who's never seen your data before doesn't know your field and of course you know I I had a colleague say to me once "Sir, you actually have to explain what's in your chart because Mm. these people don't work with your data and they're you know they're not used to it so One, call out the message that you're trying to get across. And two, my rule of thumb is one message per chart. Unless you're dealing with people who are really deep in what you're doing and will easily get it, if you're communicating to outsiders, you know, one slide, one message, one chart. (laughs) Sure.
0: And would you recommend saying the message first? and then going into the storytelling or tell the story and then present, right, the message? What's your your play on that indirect communication?
1: I generally start with the kind of business problem, the motivation, yep. what was driving us to do this piece of work. And then, you know, you might give some methodology on, you know, the plan of attack and follow up with, well, this is what fell out. You know, if you're lucky, you might have one of these climactic or anticlimactic stories on the way <laughs> where something went wrong, and um, which tends to jazz up the story a little bit. But yeah, generally I like to bring my audience on my journey and feel it nearly as I felt it. Beautiful.
0: And also such a great perspective, like you said, start with the business problem. What's driving, right? your methodology, and then, and then the results that you found.
1: Absolutely.
0: So what are some of the insights with respect to looking for red flags in operationalizing machine learning models?
1: So a number of years ago, machine learning was all about single, you know, single models and putting something that was long lived to me red flags are very simple things like data quality, not getting the basics right, not having your data organized in the right way, not baselining things and understanding the metrics in your system. Because after all, you know, you're solving a problem and you've got to understand the problem that you're solving. And then you've got to understand, for example, if your model is drifting, you've got to understand and weigh up the costs of Uh, redevelopment, retraining, um, versus the impact to your customer of not increasing your efficacy. So definitely measure, measure, measure. But then, you know, as a physicist, it kind of comes naturally to me. Sure.
0: And then what, with that, are some of your insights on best practices for operationalizing these models?
1: I think that if you can find a way to draw your data scientists closer to deployment, to provide templates, to provide classes, to provide mechanisms for them to plug into, then you're going to spend an awful lot less time translating their notebooks into operationalized code where, you know, you use perhaps open source tools like Kubeflow or MLflow, you give them a mechanism to log out um, their parameters, do their auto ML um, and store things in a, a very repeatable, um, transparent fashion. If they have a structure to fall into, and then your deployment engineer has a, a structure to read, and um, it reduces your chances of a hiccup, and it speeds up your time um, to improve your model. And I have to say some of the data and AI conferences the last number of years have very much been of that kind of ilk from what I've seen, which is, is finding APIs for the data scientists to work with, to find metrics, functions, you know, not getting them to write the boilerplate. Fantastic.
0: What advice would you give to future generations interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence?
1: Have fun with it. Get down and dirty with the data. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, Kaggle is all very well and good. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic resource, a fantastic platform. But the challenges I see for new generation data scientists is dirty data, you know, unstructured data, Mm -hmm. scraping their own data. Some of the most impressive interns uh, I've come across are those who have written scripts to do that 90% of a data scientist's job, that data munging and cleaning and ordering. That, I think, is where you get the love of your data, where you start to understand your subject matter, where the, the rubber meets the road, where you find a common language with the subject matter expert that you're trying to work with. Real data from real examples. Yeah.
0: And how do you unwind at the end of a workday, right? Or digest all the data, right? That you're working with.
1: How do I leave that behind? I, sometimes I can't. Sometimes that's where the answers happen. You can be sitting on the sofa, watching Netflix and, you know, you can have a a mind moment and have to write it down.
0: I love what you said about allow yourself to have a mind moment because then Sometimes that's where, right, your zone of genius happens. And mm-hmm. then I personally feel that we need to normalize that it is okay to think about work outside of hours, right? Because in my experience, being more fluid with it and also having healthy boundaries has led me to be more inspired, right, and successful in my day-to-day versus being so rigid about, you know, thinking about, right, data or cybersecurity past 8 p.m. It's normal.
1: I mean, it's true. I mean, I do an awful lot of reading on Wired or, you know, ZDNet or those kind of things. You know, social media is great for allowing those on you know, collections to be readily available. I would do an awful lot of that kind of reading. But
0: You mentioned some resources and platforms to learn about machine learning and artificial intelligence in your field, right, as a, as a whole. Anything else that you would recommend? For resources or books or podcasts, people that you enjoy following, besides the EWF, of course.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I was just looking today, um, you know, Trevor Hastie has a, a YouTube series on statistical learning. I found his books so informative, so practical with worked examples, right down to your, you know, this is the part of a random forest. It does this, and this is why it does it, that blend of the mathematics and the machine learning. There's a great diversity in hacked books. What else have I got? I have just a huge bookshelf full of, I have a, mostly a lot of the standard ones, pattern recognition and, and such. Analytics Via is a really good resource. Great diversity of content, and um, everything from deep learning to operationalization. The Spark Summit slides. That's their fantastic. It, actually, it's not called Spark Summit anymore. I think it's called Data and AI Summit. And they have some great material, YouTube videos, and slide decks from different companies that have operationalized ML in different ways using different architectures that have come across different problems. Everybody from Uber, Zalando and lots of new niche libraries. Yeah, so definitely there's plenty out there.
0: Wonderful. Well, I know our listeners will enjoy exploring some of those resources and be inspired to continuously learn and develop themselves in our field. I want to thank you for your time this afternoon.
1: And it was such a pleasure. It was a real pleasure, Jessica. Thank you very much for having me on.